0: I'm Dr. Mark Ward, and you are listening to the Bible Study Magazine podcast from Faithlife, makers of Logos Bible Software. Today we are going to talk about something that part of me sort of wishes nobody had to care about, textual criticism, the history of the Hebrew and Greek manuscripts from which our English and Spanish and Urdu and French and Russian Bibles are translated. I think this is a topic that we need to talk about, however, even and especially in a Bible Study Magazine podcast season that is dedicated to biblical literacy. Uh, Bible readers are going to encounter this question. Why do the footnotes in my Bible translation say that the, quote, oldest manuscripts do not include Mark 16, 9 to 20? What does that mean? (laughs) Questions like this can be a little scary, but I'd rather talk about them in advance, lest they come up as a shock later. I brought some Faith Life friends into the studio to talk over the topic with me, the topic of textual criticism. But first, I had a conversation with my online friend, Peter Gurry, Dr. Peter Gurry, who has some real training in this area, depth of wisdom and understanding. We had some real fun with this nerdy topic, believe it or not, and I think what Dr. Gurry has to say will be instructive and edifying. It will help you, or will help you help others to be more biblically literate. The Bible Study Magazine podcast is brought to you by Bible Study Magazine. Delivering tools and methods for Bible study from respected scholars and church leaders. Right now, start a free trial. Get six months of fresh insights on achieving greater Bible literacy. Visit BibleStudyMagazine.com slash trial today. Dr. Peter Gurry, who are you and why should we care?
1: My name is Peter Gurry I teach New Testament at Phoenix Seminary in Arizona. I've been there for about two years. And why should you care what I have to say? I don't know. I really find out, I guess.
0: <laughs> okay, so we're just enough personal friends that I could ask the question that way. I'll tell you why I care, Dr. Peter Gurry, because I have been reading your stuff. And I have found it not just intellectually satisfying, but truly edifying. You are someone who cares about the church. And in your particular field, I've seen you demonstrate that care. And I want you to tell us quickly, what is that field? What have you studied? And tell us about the new foundation that you've set up.
1: Oh, sure. I'd love to. Um, so I teach New Testament. So I teach everything across that spectrum. Uh, I've now taught every book in the New Testament at seminary. And I teach lots of Greek courses. Uh, I will teach a course on textual criticism this fall. I've taught courses on the parables. But my main area of expertise is what we call textual criticism, which we're going to talk about today, I think. So that is trying to sort out differences between our manuscripts of the Bible. And that connects very closely with the new institute that we've started at Phoenix Seminary, which is called the Text and Canon Institute which is co-directed by me and my Old Testament colleague there, Dr. John Mead. And if anyone is interested in that, you can go to the website, ps.edu slash TCI, TCI for Text and Canon Institute. And essentially, it's a research institute that is aimed to make advances in our understanding of the history of the Bible and how we got it, while also helping the church understand better how she got her sacred book.
0: And those anticipate the questions I want to ask you. Our theme for the first season of the Bible Study Magazine podcast is biblical literacy. And I want to therefore start at the very beginning. Our audience does include pastors and other Bible nerds, but also folks who are seeking biblical literacy. So starting at the very beginning, the basics, can you sketch out the process by which the Old and New Testaments came down to us through history?
1: Sure. So, and I'm going to emphasize New Testament since that's my primary area, but in terms of the Old Testament and and really the New Testament in general, you can think uh, of the authors of each book writing the book, in some cases in the Old Testament, uh, there seems to be evidence of some updating later to those books, clarifying some things for later readers. But then at some point, the books uh, appear to be more or less uh, standardized. And in the case of the Old Testament, that seems to have happened through the location of the temple. So, for example, in the Old Testament itself, we learn in 2 Kings 22 that Hilkiah, the high priest in the, in the time of Josiah, King Josiah, they find the book of the law. There seems to be a reference to the first five books of the Old Testament, but where do they find it? They find it in the temple. And so in the Old Testament, the focus or the place where the books of then, of, of the, what we now call the Old Testament, uh, are housed is in the temple in Jerusalem. And so that is kind of the center of where those books are housed and kept. By the time we get to the New Testament, the New Testament is, grows out of the early Christian movement, which is centered around Jesus and the belief that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's risen from the dead, and that all people in the whole world need to hear about him. And so very quickly, the Christian movement becomes a missionary movement, where the the message, the gospel, the good news about Jesus, needs to go to all people. And so letters are written to churches around the Greco-Roman Empire, and uh, things like Paul's letters, but then also the gospels are written, and those are taken to various places uh, in this empire. And very quickly on, they are translated into other languages. And so... In the Old Testament, you have kind of a centralized control through the temple on these uh, books that are considered to be sacred. Whereas in the New Testament, you very quickly have a spread where these books are sent all over the place. Um, And uh, how we get them then is by taking the manuscripts of these books that we do have, trying to study them and understand them, trying to identify the best ones among them and then basing our English translations off of
0: those. Now, for you to say that there are best ones, best manuscript copies of the New Testament, implies that some are not quite so best, and that therefore there are differences. The technical term, as you well know, is textual variance among these manuscripts. Um, how do you, broadly speaking, evaluate the textual variants? particularly your specialty is the New Testament, and the broadest generalizations tell us how you do that?
1: Great question. So it's it's uh, pretty straightforward. Obviously, it gets complicated as you add more and more manuscripts, and the differences can begin to become slight between particular manuscripts. But in general, the process is, first thing is to, is to uh, study as many manuscripts as we can. And as you begin to compare them word by word, you find that some of them have different words than other ones. And as you begin to identify more and more differences, you can begin to study those differences and Um, using your own understanding of the Bible, using our understanding of of scribes and the way they did their work, you can begin to identify the most likely variants among the manuscripts that are created by the scribes rather than written by the authors themselves. And so what you can do then is as you begin to identify more and more variants that you think were created by scribes, manuscripts that have more of those type of variants, well, those are not as good as manuscripts that have fewer of those. So it's a it obviously can get more complicated than this and does, but the general principle is you want to look at the manuscripts and try to identify how many scribally created readings does this manuscript have in comparison to other manuscripts.
0: Now, you don't seem to be alarmed by these variations. What do you say to a faithful Christian, a, a lay person attending church over the years who finds it troubling to discover that there are textual variants among these Greek New Testament manuscripts?
1: Great question. Uh, the first thing I would say is I would, I would say when you first learn about them, I think actually it's okay to be a bit bothered by them. Uh, one of the reasons why I've done what I do as a, as a scholar is because I was bothered by them at some point. Now, I've lived with a lot of these variants for a number of years now. And so in some ways, they're kind of, I hate to say old news, but I've become at least familiar with them. So they don't trouble me as much as they did when I first learned about them. But I think it's okay to be a bit troubled by them when you first learn about them. And then what I want to do is walk someone through the reasons why we have them and how we can uh, discern the original text, the text that the authors actually wrote among those variants. And after years of years of study, uh, I'm more convinced than ever that in most cases, we can identify the text of the authors with really high confidence, uh, that there are some cases where we can't, but those are few and far between and that uh, my Christian faith as a whole is not changed depending on which manuscript I read. So even if I took the, the worst manuscript that I have access to, it's still really pretty good. and still give me the Christian faith as I know
0: it. You anticipated my next question, which would be how significant are these variants? And you're saying that you're not troubled by them, they don't change the Christian faith, but somebody who is troubled by them at least is asking the question. You know, I want to see for myself if they don't read Greek, how can they see them for themselves? Hint, hint, hint. You can mention <laughs> my project.
1: Yes, I will. Um, okay, so um, yeah, that's a good question. And I think the reason why people are often troubled by them there's a couple of reasons. One is, especially for conservative evangelicals, we believe that the Bible has no errors in it, and oftentimes variants are actually described as being errors, scribal errors. And it can be helpful up front to distinguish between a theological error and a scribal error. Most scribal errors are not actually theological errors at all. So if one scribe writes that Jesus said something and the next scribe makes mistakes and says Jesus Christ said something, in the technical sense, he's made an error. That is, he has not copied uh, his, his own example manuscript perfectly, right? So that's a scribal error. But none of us would say that it's theologically wrong to call Jesus, Jesus Christ course, right? So the first thing to say is to realize that most of the errors in our manuscripts are not of a theological nature at all. That is, they don't create a theological problem for us, okay? Um, even if they may not be what the author wrote, they're still not wrong in the ultimate sense of being untrue. Uh, the other thing that I would say is um, people can often be bothered because once they find out about variants in our manuscripts, they wonder if maybe the whole Bible is full of variance. And if there's some maybe been some kind of conspiracy even to change the bible um so i know one of bart ehrman's uh second or third popular level books the subtitle was something like you know uh why the bible has mistakes and why no nobody knows about it kind of thing right and the sense was there's all these mistakes in the bibles and you don't know about them they've been hidden from you well that's just really not true The, the variants that we're talking about the most important ones are already noted in your English Bible. So I was, the first thing I always tell somebody is if you wanna know where the most important variants are, that is the ones that are difficult to resolve and that have some effect on the meaning of the text, look in the footnotes of your English Bible and you'll, you'll find them noted already there. So they'll say something like some manuscripts say, and then they'll give you the alternate, okay? So that's one way. Uh, another resource I often recommend is netbible.org which is a translation that was done by a number of professors at Dallas Seminary where I went to school. And in the Net Bible, one of the types of notes that they have are called TC notes, which stands for text criticism. And they often have a decent discussion of the most important variants there. Now, if you want something even simpler, this is where your hint, hint comes in. And that is you could sit down and compare two translations that are based on two different Greek foundational texts. And that would be something like the King James and New, or New King James and compare that to something like the ESV. And if you don't want to do that manually, you could go to kjvparallelbible.org, go there. And my understanding is that you and a team of hardworking individuals have gone through and already done that work for us and highlighted in English the differences between the King James and something like the base text of the ESV and noted the differences between them in English for us. And so you can actually see those for yourself. Is that right?
0: Thank you. And you were not paid for that uh, advertisement. And of course, I don't, I'm not paid for that work either. That was volunteer work. Yeah. So one of the answers I also give, and it sounds like you're going along the same lines to people who are concerned about the variants is that nobody's hiding anything in fact the professional's job you know people like you is actually to show all of these variants to the world and to make them as accessible as possible and in the internet era they've become you know more than accessible they've been in fact translated in in several places and and you've mentioned them so people don't have to fear you know ignorance breeds fear but if you can actually look these variants my stock example is did the star come to rest over baby Jesus or did it come and stand over him? You know, what doctrine is affected by that variant? I really can't think of one. It doesn't really even mean anything different. And so, so many of the variants are like that. And then I'll give a little uh, plug for my project, kjvparallelbible.org. If you look at that project, you see that verse after verse after verse and word after word after word, even in verses where there are variants. So many verses and passages are exactly the same in the two major texts that are actually, you know, practically available to us. So uh, people who are seeking biblical literacy need to know about this, need to have some skill in uh, looking up these problems, but need not be alarmed. So could we kind of stop here and, and say that anyone who knows the basics that we've just talked about now knows enough to achieve biblical literacy, or would you say that there's anything more they need to know, or, or is it less? Could, could someone be biblically literate and have no idea of the existence of textual variants and textual criticism?
1: Um, that's a great question. Um, I think, so biblical literacy, I guess you could think of meaning understanding the Bible itself. And I think our English translations are of such good quality nowadays that uh, you can know next to nothing about textual criticism and the variants that are there, and you still know your Bible very well. And because our translations are so good, you would know something that's very good and reliable, that is a very good and reliable translation. Um, as far as biblical literacy goes, it just kind of depends on what your particular role is. So I sometimes talk to my students about what I call the mom test when it comes to textual variants. And that is, I ask, do most variants pass the mom test, which is does my mom, who's been a faithful Bible reader her whole life, does she need to know about this variant in order to understand the Bible and to read it well? And most variants, in my opinion, do not pass the mom test. As I mentioned, some of them do. And I think that most of those are already noted in your footnotes, your English Bible, right there for you to see. But if a person really wants to know more, and this is a person who says, look, I don't just want to be a casual reader of the Bible, as I hope most people don't want to be. Uh, they say, I want to know more about these variants and what the differences are. Then I would say, yes, you do need to know more. And there are some great resources where you could learn more about these. And I think at this point, I could also say, um, you know, one of the questions that comes up is when I talk about variants and I say, look, most of them are not of great significance to most Bible readers. The next natural question is, well, then why do you bother studying these things? Um, because as you'll find in the world of biblical studies, text critics are often kind of seen as the nerds of the nerds, you know what I mean? Uh, and so it's kind of like why spend all your time working on this? And, the, and there's a couple of answers you could give to that. My first answer is always because it's fun. I enjoy it. Um, but one of the answers to that is because actually in studying the variants themselves, we can sometimes understand how our predecessors in the faith read and understood the Bible. And that is sometimes the variants themselves become almost a kind of commentary for us on the biblical text. So for me, for example, when I'm teaching the Bible, I want to understand the Bible as carefully and as well as I can. And by thinking through the variants that I find in the manuscripts, it forces me to think more carefully about what the Bible says than I would have otherwise.
0: I think that's a great answer. You know, and when I've done the same thing, looked at these variants, and sometimes they're a tip-off you know, when they carry any significance, sometimes they're a tip-off to some kind of interpretive question. And I actually find it comforting to know that someone who knows how many centuries ago had the very same question that I do about the meaning of this text. And wouldn't it make a little bit more sense for this to be an heiress rather than a present? Um, I'm I'm with some anonymous Bible reader in puzzling, in some cases, over what God means and again I find that comforting and I think something else you said is really relevant to our whole series on biblical literacy and that is you can define biblical literacy differently depending on what your calling is so the literacy required of a pastor or Sunday school teacher or a mom might differ and that doesn't mean that you can't reach higher you certainly can there are so many wonderful resources available out there but that you are allowed to say, okay, what what do I need to know in order to fulfill my callings effectively? Now, I just read a quote from that very uh, atheistic biblical scholar you mentioned earlier, Bart Ehrman, Which sounded precisely to me like things I've heard some Christians say. Basically, what he argued was that it seemed to him I don't know if he was speaking of the time when he was a professing evangelical Christian or if it still seems this way to him, but it seemed to him that if God inspired the Bible, and particularly in this case, the New Testament that he would preserve it for us perfectly. And he concluded it wasn't preserved for us perfectly. We have these variants, so it must not have been inspired by God. So can you believe that the Bible is inspired and authoritative, true in everything it affirms, and yet also believe that there are unsolved textual variants? In in other words, does divine inspiration demand perfect preservation of the text?
1: Right, that's a great question. And uh, one that that, uh, comes up, oftentimes uh, among certain Protestants. Um, and there is a, a history in the Protestant tradition of thinking this way, particularly in regard to the Textus Receptus, which was the printed edition of the Greek Testament that was used for hundreds of years uh, at the time of the Reformation and then following that. Um, and no, I've never been convinced that divine inspiration does require perfect preservation of the text. And one reason for that is because um, I don't think there's ever been a period of history where every Christian on the planet has had access to a perfectly preserved word of God. That is to say, there have always been periods of history. In fact, there are still places today where people do not have Bibles that are as good as the Bibles that other people have around the world. So, you know, there are, there are Christians around the world today who have bad translations in their language and, and organizations like Wycliffe and other translation organizations are working to improve those. Do I think those people do not have access to the Word of God? No, I think that they do. Um, Ideally, we want to have the best available one, but God seems to have put himself under no obligation in the history of the church to give every Christian at every time at every place access to the absolute perfect edition of his Word in the Bible. So, uh, no, I don't think the Bible promises us that, and I don't think we as Christians actually need that. I think we need an adequate word from God, and I think what he's given us today, and actually I'd be comfortable saying what he's given um, every generation of Christians is a more than adequate word. And that is it's more than adequate to follow him, to know what he wants us to do, to produce right doctrine, and to live accordingly. Um, and one reason for that is because if we demand perfection at the level of the text, I don't see why we shouldn't also demand perfection at the level of interpretation and then at the level of application. And I don't know anybody who thinks that actually we are capable of perfectly interpreting every last bit of the Bible or that we are capable of perfectly applying it and living it. So if we are comfortable with imperfection in our own reading of it, it seems to me that we could allow imperfection in the transmission of it. As
0: well. I'm so totally with you. And a parallel argument I have found myself using is that Ephesians 4 says pastors and teachers are Christ's gifts to his church evangelists as well. And several others mentioned there. And yet, does anybody have a perfect pastor out there or any pastors listening to this claiming perfection, aside from a very few in the Wesleyan tradition? I don't think so. And should we say then that, well, we don't want these gifts? Should we look Christ's gift horses in the mouth? No, we say we're grateful for our pastor. Uh, We will even submit to his authority because the Bible says so, but we'll never say he's perfect. There might be a time at which he would direct us in some way, whether through interpretation or counsel, that is erroneous. We recognize that, and so does every good pastor, and yet they are Christ's gifts. Yeah, and another comforting... uh, Argument, I think, was one used by my own dissertation committee advisor, who is known for diagramming the entire Greek New Testament. In this case, for Bible works, um, he said there there are no, you know, Arminian Greek New Testaments and Calvinist ones, or cessationist and continu- continuationist ones. So there really isn't, uh, there aren't denominational differences that are determined by which Greek New Testament you accept. Um, You really just cannot get a different doctrine, a different Jesus out of any of the Greek New Testament variants available. I find that comforting. For me, textual criticism is personal. I don't just do biblical studies for a living. I actually believe the stuff in the Bible. I, I want to hear the unadulterated words of God. And, yeah, I I find it unpleasant as someone who believes in the inspiration and authority of the Bible to have to talk about errors in the manuscript transmission process. For the last few years, I have been on the lookout for careful, level-headed, well-researched introductions that will help me help others understand the disciplines of, of Old Testament and New Testament textual criticism. I have found a great resource written by Wendy Witter and Amy Anderson in the Lexham Methods series. It's simply called textual criticism of the Bible, and it has come out fairly recently in a revised edition. One of the things I like about the book compared to most others I've run into is that it teaches Old Testament and New Testament textual criticism at the same time. Another is that it does the patient and difficult work of not just talking out loud, but actually coming up with examples, many, many of them. Textual criticism is, I think, a (laughs) tempest in a teapot. On no view available, can you come up with a Bible that says Jesus wasn't God or that actually his disciples stole his body from the tomb. But boy, does that tempest rage in that teapot. If you need help sailing through the storm, let Witter and Anderson be your guides. I just went back through the whole thing and I was very impressed. It answered some simple questions I had that I was afraid to ask lest I appear dumb. It also got into some fun and nerdy detail that I'd been needing personally. Witter and Anderson have done their homework, all the way up to and including the most recent major Greek New Testament edition from Tyndall House that just came out not that long ago. If you need to do your homework, get their book at Leximpress.com. Textual Criticism of the Bible, Revised Edition. Now, you earlier uh, alluded to a point that I has really kind of been new to me. Just recently, I did read and review for the Lagos blog Dirk Youngkind's, um companion volume to his edition worked on at Tyndall House, Cambridge. And I believe you have some familiarity with that outfit. Um, he His uh, Greek New Testament they've put out, and he's done a really great job in really introducing New Testament textual criticism, I was impressed with it. And one thing that he did that really impressed me, that was helpful to me, was he tied the existence of textual variants to the good purposes of God. You said something similar when you said, you know, compared to Judaism, in which there was this central authority and the the text of the law was found in the temple, and there there could be sort of an authoritative exemplar for everybody else to conform to. You know, the, the letters that make up much of the New Testament were from their very origins sent out to multiple disparate places around the ancient world, and anybody who copies them and comes up with these minor, I could say in a way, typos, um, they're not going to have an easy means by which to compare them to a standard. And Yonkint said that uh, Jankent tied these variants, therefore, to something good. God's purpose always was to bless all the families of the earth, not just the Jews, And that's why we have variants. I just wonder, and it's really okay if you don't have an answer to this question, have you ever heard anyone give any other positive reasons why God might have left us these New Testament textual variants? Um,
1: That's a good question. Yes, well, yes, although usually there are people who do not have a particularly high view of the Bible. Uh, So actually I think Dirk's position uh, is really interesting because Dirk does have a very high view of the Bible. Um, and so his, actually, that was new to me as well, reading that book, and I appreciated that and been thinking about that since I read it.
0: Um,
1: some people see value actually in the variance because that, for them, then decentralizes the authority of the Bible. So there can be no single authoritative edition, and therefore the Bible has less authority for them. And they see that as a kind of a freeing thing. Uh, I certainly would disagree with that position, but that is the way some people would go, Um, I think in terms of, for a person with a high view of scripture, seeing value in the variance, to me, again, it is um, the variance that, let's say I can identify a variant. and I'm very convinced it is not original, and therefore not inspired by God, it is still, to me, uh, evidence of the way people have read the Bible in the past. And in some cases, actually, well, in every case, it it is an example of the Bible that these people read. So I think of a manuscript like Codex Bezai, which your listeners can look up on Google if they want to learn more about that. But Codex Bezai is a famously quirky manuscript. It's a copy of the Gospels and of Acts primarily. And it's just very quirky. It has a lot of readings in it that are only in that manuscript. And I sometimes remind myself that as much as I don't prefer the readings in there that are quirky, that was still somebody's Bible at some point in time. And I don't know who they were, but I can assume that they still had access to God's word in that manuscript and they still knew the most important things about Jesus and were still able to follow him and develop their theology and, and write music about it. And, you know, all the, all the other things that are part of being a Christian. And so it's a reminder to me that God works through history and that I'm not the first Christian ever on the planet to try to do this thing we call the Christian life. So I think there's value in just understanding that the manuscripts themselves, they are, they are material artifacts of our predecessors and a testimony by virtue of that of the great cloud of witnesses that has gone before us. Um, and as I mentioned, I think some variants do help me wrestle with what the text means better. And sometimes actually they provide illumination on the original text. So even a variant that is not original sometimes gives me new insight into what the original means. Does that
0: make sense? Sure does. And this follows along from previous parts of our discussion here. Uh, because much as God has given us good but imperfect gifts in our pastors, we have the same in translation. So, you know, almost every believer out there Really, the way they're encountering the Bible mainly is through translation and no translator worth his salt is claiming to have divine inspiration for all of the choices he or she must make. And therefore, there are going to be some places where maybe you didn't get quite the best rendering or one that was too literal or not literal enough. And and yet, do you have God's Word? I think that the King James translators, in their preface, which is really really rich, but also really really dense, they said that even the meanest translation of the Word of God—you know, the least, the least, uh, the, the the poorest quality translation contains, no, is, they said, the word of God, just like when the king's speech speaks before parliament and his words get translated into Dutch. Even if some translators aren't quite as good, that's still the king's speech. Same with God speaking through the Greek and the New Testament. We've got these variants that, yeah, there's a little bit of static they're creating for God's speech, but his speech is powerful enough to come through over that static would would you consider that a worthwhile analogy
1: i I want to i want to add one point and maybe i should have made this point earlier but that is when we compare the authority of the bible to something like the authority of our pastors or say the, the authority of a translation one reason why we're comfortable with the authority of a translation is that we all know that it goes back to something behind it that we think can be that can be a kind of rule or guide to correct the translation and same with our pastors we we're, we're comfortable with our pastors being errant and fallible precisely because we believe there's a Bible that can correct them if, if it needs to, right? And so there's a kind of a fixed standard that we know is behind these things. And I think that is where people can get troubled by the reality of variance because they think there is this fixed standard that can judge all others. And I just want to say to a person who's worried about that, in most places, that is true, that the the, the Greek New Testament there is very little reason to doubt that we have the original text in most cases. And so in all those cases, we have a fixed standard by which to judge all other authorities, right? But where there is still debate or discussion or where we're not confident, um, those are so few and far between that I don't think they need to unseat the Bible as our fundamental and most important authority. Does Does that make sense? I think that difference is important to note.
0: I fully agree. So if you do encounter a difference, and let's say, again, on the level of people seeking biblical literacy, they're going to encounter this difference most likely between two English Bible translations. If you see a difference between two English translations, how likely is it that what you're seeing is the result of a textual critical variant? I mean, and and how can you find out if you want to? What resources can you look into?
1: You can look at the resources we already mentioned. So netbible.org and then your Parallel Bible at kjvparallelbible.org. That would be those. Would be two really good places to see. Okay, is this actually a difference of text rather than just translation of the same text? But I would say my off the cuff number would be nine times out of ten, a difference between translations will not involve a variation in the original. That is the Greek, or the Greek original. Um, so nine times out of ten, it will be a difference of translation philosophy. Or a difference of interpreting the same Greek text, and only occasionally will it be a difference of of actual textual variant.
0: I might give a higher number because I'll I'll add something else. The likelihood that you'll actually notice the difference because it was significant for interpretation is low. So um, how often does that happen? I you know I'd say that's pretty rare. And actually, um, do correct me here if I'm wrong on this, but essentially there are just two Greek New Testament editions that are available in translation. You basically got the Texas Receptus underlying the King James, New King James and modern English version, and a lot of more obscure lesser known versions. And then you've got the, the critical text, generally speaking, it's called the Nestle-Land. Um, and there are little variations there, but essentially those are the only two choices. So the likelihood that you're going to see a difference between English versions and it's going to be due to textual criticism, that's only going to happen if you're looking at the King James, New King James, or Modern English version on the one hand, and the NIV, ESV, CSB, NASB, something like that on yeah, the other yeah, hand. Yes? True.
1: And you're the one who's gone through you know, the whole Bible and marked these changes, so I'll actually defer to you on how many of them. But okay. let, me, let me mention a couple that may, that do sometimes come up, and that is uh, there are some cases where there's like a whole verse or a chunk of a verse that is in the King James and is not in more recent translations like the ESV or NASV. Those are usually the ones where people tend to notice it, so some sometimes it's just a whole verse missing and say you jump from verse 36 to verse 38 or something. And that may be a case where, yes, it's definitely an issue of textual criticism involved, not just translation. Let me mention uh, one other one, just so your readers have a concrete example. In Jude, verse 5, most translations will say that the Lord is the one who led a people out of Egypt. But if you read the ESV, it will say that Jesus led his people out of Egypt. And that is a particularly difficult variation there in the book of Jude, um, where actually the editors of the Nestle-Alan edition have changed their minds between the previous edition and the current edition. Uh, what's interesting about that one is that the ESV committee made that decision to prefer Jesus over the word Lord before the update to the Nestle-Alan had even come out. So it's helpful to, come, it's helpful to remember that translation committees do not have to follow any particular printed Greek edition slavishly. In fact, none of them do. They all have the authority and and the the purview to make their own text-critical decisions where they disagree with the editors of any particular Greek New Testament.
0: And in fact, the, the King James translators themselves did that. They disagreed with Beza, which is one of the texts they had, 1598, and with Stephanus, 1550. And they felt free to go with one or the other or go against both you know, dozens of times, every translation does this, it's not new, and the King James translators actually put those footnotes in the margin that you've mentioned, you know, some manuscripts read this or that, rather than what they put in the text, it's not like this is just a, a modern thing, this has been, you know, people have been aware of these variants going back actually into antiquity Correct. in the church, yeah. yes? And then
1: the other thing I'd say is there's a great example of, of, of actually a variant that is noted in the King James, it is sometimes uh, obscure or easy to miss, but in First John two twenty three, uh, you of course know about this mark. The original King James noted places where the original text didn't have a word, but that it's a word that we need in English to complete the sense. Right, um, so a word like is or even or something like that, and these were marked in. Roman letters as opposed to black letters in the original printing. Later, that was changed to italics. So in 1 John 2.23, if you actually look at a King James, the second half of that verse is in italics in our current printings of the King James. That is not a case where those words were missing from the original and needed in English to complete the sentence. That's not a case of that. It's actually one of the only cases, maybe the only case, where the translators used this other formatting, this other typesetting, to mark a place of variation in the Textus Receptus itself in the various editions of the TR. So that's a really interesting one. And that just shows us that even the King James translators, they had decisions that they had to make. It's not like they slavishly followed one of Beza's printings. There were places where they departed even from, from that.
0: So I think you're demonstrating to Bible Study Magazine podcast listeners that textual criticism does get awfully nerdy. And I guess I must be a nerd because I'm enjoying it too. And let's like amp up the nerdiness level here just a little bit because you are known for your work on a computerized method of figuring out the relationships among existing Greek New Testament manuscripts, called the Coherence-Based Genealogical Method, or CBGM. I read your article on this in JETS, the Theological Journal. And here's my question, okay? Is the CBGM real, or did you just make it up in order to get a dissertation? I mean, now that you've got the diploma on the wall, can you can you feel safe telling us the truth?
1: Well, let me see. first of all, I don't have my diploma on the wall. It's, it's on the shelf somewhere. Um, but yes, uh, I did make it up. Yep. I did, I made it up.
0: (laughs) You heard it here, folks. (laughs) No,
1: I I did not make it up, although there were times where I felt like someone else had made it up. So the coherence-based genealogical method is a new attempt to relate the text of Greek manuscripts to each other. So what your listeners probably don't know is that in textual criticism uh, from various different fields, so your listeners may not realize that the, the Bible is not, by any means, the only book, the textual criticism is needed for. Uh, we need to do textual criticism for Shakespeare's plays. Uh, we, we need to do it on anything before the printing press. In some cases, we even have to do it for modern authors where we have a copy of a handwritten, say, poem that a poet has written, and then later the first published edition, and then maybe even a second edition. And that can involve textual criticism. Uh, in the case of most classical, Writings. So, writings from the ancient world like the Iliad and the Odyssey, scholars have to do textual criticism. And usually, the way they have done this is that the first step is to try to relate the manuscripts that they have for this particular work, so say the Odyssey. And once they have related the manuscripts to each other, uh, then they can eliminate the least important manuscripts. So, it basically is if you can kind of think of a family tree, you're trying to construct a kind of a family tree for this. Writing And once you've identified the family tree of these manuscripts, you can kind of eliminate, say, the great, great, great grandchildren, because they're too far away from the source. Right. You want the manuscripts that are closest to the source. The problem for the Bible and for the New Testament in particular is that the New Testament manuscripts suffer from contamination, which is, you'll excuse me, but is a bit like inbreeding in a family. And it kind of messes up our genealogies. It makes it really difficult for us as scholars to relate manuscripts to each other. So for for most of of the history of biblical studies, we have not tried to do that for the New Testament, except in some isolated cases, like with a handful of manuscripts. What this new method, the coherence-based, and here's the key word, genealogical method, what it tries to do is it's a new way to try to relate the text of manuscripts to each other and to then help us resolve differences between us using those relationships.
0: I did read that article, and it was a little bit discouraging because I did find it difficult to understand, I must confess. There's math in there, and that's why I got into biblical studies, you know, to avoid math. So I was a little bit resentful of that. Now, there are some interesting parallels between you and me. Um, There are certainly just. disjunctions. You went to an elite English university, but we both are earnest Christians who want to follow the Bible, who want to build, as you said earlier, right doctrine, and then have our lives follow that right doctrine. And we also uh, love graphic design. And I think I met you online because I saw that you had done the design, a new design for the Evangelical Textual Criticism blog. And I thought, I have just got to congratulate this guy because the blog did not look so nice before, and now it looks great. So that's a good segue for me to tell everyone in the listening audience that if they want to nerd out on this stuff anymore, whether they want to be introduced to it slowly or dive in, your website that you and others, I guess especially really in that Tyndall House arena, uh, have worked on, is a really great fun place little tidbits you can get there about textual criticism are are very interesting and occasionally when there are pieces of big news like the Jesus wife fragment or the obelisks in was it Sinaiiticus that supposedly indicate that certain passages of the New Testament that are fought over are not original I go right to your site there that you designed and you write for to look for help and answers. I wonder what else would you tell people to, to look into? Where, where would you have them start in this uh, arena?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Our, in some ways our blog is, is uh, kind of, if you, if you go there, you're, you're kind of jumping in midstream sort of the conversations already happening. That's a, one place where it unfolds. If you want, just kind of a, a, an introduction to text criticism itself um, I'll tell you a couple of books that I like. I, I've just finished Dirk Yonkin's book that you mentioned already, which is an introduction to the Greek New Testament produced at Tyndale House. Um, that's very short. It has some Greek in it, so it may not be as accessible to those who don't know any Greek, but it's written in a very accessible style um, and it covers some issues uh, very nicely in short order. The one that I have my beginning Greek students read is called uh, The Textual Criticism of the Bible by Amy Anderson and Wendy Witter which I believe is published by Lexon Press. And then the next step beyond that, I think, that's that right. still the standard introduction, is the text of the New Testament by Bart Ehrman and Bruce Metzger. That is still a great overview of the topic that I recommend.
0: Yeah, that was the book in the previous edition before Ehrman worked on it that I was given in seminary, and Metzger is quite the writer. It really is a romantic story, even, Textual criticism has some swashbuckling adventure and other great stuff that you know you wouldn't anticipate from nerds, but it's really true. Well, thank you, Dr. Peter Gurry, for your time and your expertise. You are one of the teachers that Christ has given to His church, which means both that you are imperfect and that nonetheless you have good things to give to us, and you've done that. I personally appreciate it. I'm sure our listeners do too.
1: Well, thank you very much. I appreciate being with you.
0: I'm sitting here in the studio with some seminary graduate type guys from Faith Life. Daniel Motley, who is our book expert and here at Faith Life, uh, puts together our massive base packages. Matthew Boffey, who writes and edits for the Logos blog and Miles Custis, who manages our instructional media department, the folks who put out dozens of great video courses from top Bible teachers. And as we get our little discussion started here, guys, I kind of feel apologetic because this topic, it gets so nerdy, but I really think it needs to be talked about because I think lay people need to know about textual variants. And when the Bible study magazine focused an issue on this topic, we got some of the nicest mail from people who are really appreciative. I don't think this topic should be a secret. I wanted to know, to start the discussion, do you remember when you first discovered that there are textual variants in the manuscript tradition of the Bible? How did you handle that? Were you a bit bothered by them, as Peter Gurry said he initially was?
2: Yeah, I think probably it was sometime reading the Gospel of John or maybe Mark, and I saw those double brackets. I thought, what? What? <laughs> what do you mean some manuscripts include? you know, And so I, that probably was in high school. And you know i don't think i dug into it then but then in college you know it came up in some classes and so you're
0: talking you're talking about the big two mark 16 yeah. 9 to 20 the so-called longer ending of mark and right. even calling it that shows what my viewpoint on it is uh-huh. And then John seven fifty three to eight eleven, often called the pericope de Adultera, the story of the woman caught in adultery, which I'm going to bring up later. I have a really great hot topic pop culture question on that very passage. Oh, great. Um, those are the two biggest ones. First John five seven would be kind of third place. The the verse about the Trinity. Um, and you notice these as a Bible reader. Talk to me more about how you felt when you saw those.
2: Yeah. Um, you know, I think probably it didn't concern me too' I'll, at least I'll say the John one didn't concern me too much because I came away thinking all right even if this story didn't really happen or or if it's not supposed to be in the Bible this really seems like something Jesus would do this is consistent with his character so at the very least this is a great illustration of the character of our Lord and it can be useful even just in that so I yeah, I don't have much more than that in terms, it's so long ago now that I, you know, had that experience. But
0: Okay, so let me follow up on this by first giving a disclaimer. I do not watch The Bachelorette. Okay, you don't know where I'm going with this, do you? I really okay. don't. Uh, but I just read an article this very morning uh, about uh, apparently a professing Christian woman who is The Bachelorette and she, um, she insisted that despite her open admission of immorality, okay, she said, uh, but I know Jesus still loves me, and she brought up that passage. John seven fifty three to eight eleven in the story of the woman caught in adultery. So wouldn't it just be easier to say, let's just leave that out of the Bible now that the Bachelorette has misused it and ruined it for everybody, we Man, don't want it anymore. We have
3: come a long way from I kiss dating goodbye. Goodness.
0: Wow. Yeah, it's a different, different world. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate those comments and I had a similar experience. Now, one thing that Dr. Gurry and I didn't talk much about was specific examples and I thought I'd open it up there too. Where have where else have you noticed this actually come up? We've already hit the big ones right away. Where else has it even uh, affected your Bible study?
3: I don't know. Like it's never really bothered me in in the in the way that I think it has for most people. I think that I just had a real trust in my pastors and professors when it came to the uh, to these different manuscripts. there was a time period in my life in which I really stepped away from the faith and had intellectual objections but they weren't necessarily based on manuscripts. they were based on more uh, other ideas, other topics. But I know that I had a huge interest in, in textual criticism in, in, in college than in, in seminary simply because it's just so fascinating to see how the Bible came together. It's just it, it's, it's, it's wild how. No matter how many manuscripts we have, or excuse me, no matter how many differences there are, um, they're small differences, and and they they haven't affected as you all talked about in your conversation together. They haven't actually affected anything theologically major. Our our differences and distinctions between uh, between whether Arminian, Calvinist, or Wesleyans and and Baptist or whatever has been other considerations, and not necessarily because of text. Uh, the big one that I can think of, though, at the top of my head, to answer your question directly, I think it was Romans 5. Five one. one. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and, and we have peace with God, uh-huh. or and let us have peace with God.
3: Yeah, and that has uh, struck some people as like, well, wh- wh- how do – basically, since it does relate to the Christian life, should I be – am I in the faith because I don't feel peace? I don't actually feel peace? Or is it is it subjective or objective? Like, we're, we have peace with God, whether I feel it or not. Or is it subjective? Like I should be working towards having peace, and I think that has been has been a stumbling block for some uh, that I've heard. I know I, I know that a number of Bible studies that I've been in, people have stumbled over that one as a because it does affect them so so deeply. Because um, it does sound direct, right? Um, so that I found that one be interesting.
0: So so this topic matters, and I would rather and Would you agree? I'd rather have it come up. When I bring it up, rather than people stumbling over some difficulty.
4: Following up on, um, you know, some examples that uh, come to mind. Obviously, the two big ones we've already talked about, and and it is important to realize, even in that bigger story, you know, you joked about a bachelorette misusing that passage, um, I'm, I'm aware of that incident as well. You saw and it live. You did I'm, watch not gonna, the I'm, not, I'm not, not going to comment on whether or not we watched mm-hmm. the Bachelorette at my house because mm-hmm. that's not the purpose of this podcast. Of course not. But <laughs> I will say that. The verse she quoted was, you know, about uh, he who's without sin pick up the first stone, which you know that story may or not be may or may not be in the original Gospel of John, but that concept of of that still is present throughout the Scripture. You know, you know, judge not lest ye be judged, or
0: cast or, the beam out of your yeah, own yeah, eye before exactly. you go for the speck in someone and else's. There were
4: other passages she could have quoted if she didn't want to get into text critical issues on the <laughs> Bachelorette, which I don't think was her concern. Um, another little kind of fun, uh, example that I can think of, um, is in Psalm 145 and Psalm 145. Well, throughout the Psalms, there's often these acrostic Psalms where each verse starts with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph, Bet, et cetera, basically A through Z. And Psalm 145 is one of those Psalms, except it skipped the noon line. There was no verse that started with noon or you know, the letter N if we're going to use English. So there was clearly something that was missing. Um, and uh, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, one of the one of the psalm scrolls found there, 11QA, actually has a noon line, and that's one where you know, now we can sort of fill in the acrostic. And I think, I was looking at English translations earlier, the NIV includes it as just verse 13B. They don't make it a separate verse. Um, the ESV includes it and has brackets around it, and like the NASB and New King James still do not include it. They didn't haven't gotten updated since that was and more acceptable thing. So that's kind of a fun one where you can literally see an alphabet pattern that gets filled
0: in through textual criticism. And here's a place where, in a way, your personal Bible study has been helped by things uh, by the, this topic. You, you can recognize what's going on when you see 13B. You don't have to be confused. And of course, what do we want to do with biblical literacy except learn how to be better Bible readers? So let me focus even more on that question. Have you ever been helped by something like the TC notes, the textual criticism notes? in the net Bible or um, Lagos or our own colleague here, Rick Brannan and Israel look have put out the Lexham textual notes on the Bible where they cover old and new testaments, all the variants. Uh, there's Metzger's textual commentary and Omenson's comforts. I actually roomed with a real live textual critic when I went to the Grand Canyon recently. And I just, every time I saw him do something, I like, wow, that's how textual critics <laughs> brush their teeth. And they do. I mean, at least this one did. Uh, that was Paul Wegner. He's written some good stuff on it. Do oh, you so, compare three toothbrushes before choosing one? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the oldest he chose, toothbrushes uh, he
4: chose the original, Yeah, <laughs> yeah so exactly. I thought was yeah. a bad idea. Yeah. i I'd the new one. I don't care if
0: it's original. Um, when has, what what resources have helped you?
3: Um, so whenever I was doing, uh, you know, studying text criticism for for classes um, just just to throw out a book uh, Old Testament text criticism by um, Bratzman was really helpful so that you were talking in in, in your interview uh, with Dr Gurry about books to read and I think that one was a pretty good I think that one was a pretty good um introduction to it it's a little it's a little heavier read uh, so for someone who who maybe doesn't know Hebrew or Greek because uh, there's a New Testament text criticism as well I think by David Allen Black, I had to look that up, but it's in the same series. Baker Academic puts them both out. Um, they were both they're both very helpful. Um, walking through like some of the issues, introductory issues for uh, textual criticism, both because it's, it's going to be different for Hebrew versus um, um, Greek New Testament. The the Hebrew uh, the Greek New Testament. What we're doing is what text textual critics have been doing is looking at these families of manuscripts and coming up with uh, a, a, like an original text, or trying to come up with an original text of what the original. Um, the, the autographs would sort have of looked like so the original the autographs
0: being the originals.
3: Yeah, the, the originals. Whereas with Hebrew, what they 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 don't the BHS, the Biblical Hebraic, like the the, the the critical text that most scholars use, it doesn't attempt to try to recreate a critical edition, like a a a, a collation of all these manuscripts together. It's trying to it's it, it took the I believe the Leningrad text, and it it makes little notations about where differences are in other manuscripts, so Syriac or any other Hebrew, the Dead SC Scrolls, all that fun stuff. Um, so, it's, text criticism is different depending on whether you're talking about Greek or whether you're talking about Hebrew, uh, which is very fascinating. Uh, so, but those are two helpful books, I think, for for me
4: for when I was studying the Bible, uh, you know, as a seminary student. I don't have any um, specific books to add. I mean, those are all good ones. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention a couple of mobile ed courses we have that go over this topic pretty well. And we have two different courses by Michael Heiser. Uh, one of them is called How We Got the Old Testament and one is called How We Got the New Testament. And he walks through these issues and textual transmissions and scribal practices. And it's, it does so in a pretty easy to understand for the layperson um, way. Those would be really helpful um, if you're interested more in the topic.
2: That's great. Um, yeah, I, I also don't have resources to add. I feel like the ones you guys mentioned are, are really good, but I do have a, a comment or an answer to a question that you were sort of forming a little bit before you asked this last one of, you know, um, in your personal Bible reading, what's been like when you've come across a, a variant. And I think, um, uh, I think Peter says something kind of like this in, in the, uh, in the interview where it, it, at the very least, it makes you take a second look and think, oh, okay. So there's this a variant here and why might there be a variant and it just gets you thinking that much more critically and attentively um, about a text and and so you know yeah you can look at those little footnotes and think oh no there's another you know there's another way of going about it or you could look at it as kind of he said ooh, an interesting artifact okay what might this tell me and so I have found it to be helpful
0: in that way. Yeah, Every tool that you add to your tool belt for studying the Bible is really just another way of helpfully slowing you down in your Bible reading so you don't miss stuff. Well said. That's what I find. All the labels that I learn, all the concepts that I learn are just opportunities for me to pay better attention.
2: And that's what people say about l- learning the original
0: languages at all mm-hmm. is it, it just slows you down and helps you see things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Now, mm-hmm. a final question for everybody. And thank you for coming in to the studio to chat about this you guys are bible teachers and bible teachers of various sorts listen to this podcast i sure hope so when do you mention a textual variant as you teach sunday school or as you preach to a congregation and when do you skip over it
3: i think that the mom. what was it called the mom test i think Mm -hmm. that he brought (laughs) up about like you know what does my mom who's a faithful bible reader need to hear about this textual variant or is it covered in some other way that's better for her I think that's a great principle to follow. I mean, uh, do you want to deep dive into a thing like a like a textual issue in a in a in a Bible study? Past you're going, maybe or maybe not, depending on whether people are asking. If people have questions about the text, you don't need to hide it from them. Mm-hmm. Text criticism, like like he mentions in in, in your interview, like we don't we're, we're not hiding this from anybody. We're open source here, baby. Like we're, we're, we want to look at this. All right, we open access. We want people to know about the text. We don't want people to be to be like like we're trying to hide something like it's esoteric knowledge. So if if, it, if people have questions, we should answer the questions. But unless it's a unless it's mentioned heavily, unless it's bracketed, I, I I just don't see the. It's kind of like Greek. It's kind of like using Greek or Hebrew in preaching. Like when do you actually bring out the Greek words? I would argue virtually never. I would almost never t- mention it unless it's like a like a agape, if it's just a common Greek word that we've all known about for for a long time. But not to go into the details of it, I don't think it's just helpful.
4: Yeah, I think it's a. It's definitely helpful if you want to make sure people know how educated you are and how smart you are to really bring that stuff up. <laughs> well, that's the point of preaching, yes. right? Yes. No, no, I, I agree. Um, you know, it's it's not that important to bring up unless it's you know, something that affects meaning. Or, I mean, one reason you might want to bring it up is just to make sure people are aware of the issue. Yeah. You don't want people to be caught unprepared if someone comes and says, hey, you know, the Bible you read is Chock full of errors. There's tons of variants, and you, how can you really rely on that? And if they don't know anything about this whole field of textual criticism, they might be caught back. And you know, at the worst case scenario, doubt their faith or, or doubt hmm. the authority of
0: scripture. I, I have actually seen that happen. Sadly, so. Hmm.
4: So yeah, just getting people to know this isn't a scary thing. There there might be hundreds of variants. Most of them are spelling variants or minor errors that you can quickly understand and. Like you said, it's very transparent. And then when you do get to the bigger sections, um, you know, we recently in my church, um, the pastor preached through the gospel of Mark. And I was kind of wondering when he got to the end, how he was gonna handle that longer ending of Mark. Um, and he did preach on the those verses that are excluded in many Bibles, cause they're not in the earliest manuscripts, but he had a lengthy kind of preamble to a sermon where he kind of delved into text criticism briefly. And you know, these. These verses probably aren't in the original Gospel of Mark, but you know, we're going to look at them and and draw some points out of yeah. them anyway. That's Mark. That's I think very that's good. A good, a good oh, approach. Yeah,
2: yeah I, would, I would say, you know, maybe take a look. If your church has, you know, Pew Bibles, maybe take a look at those Bibles and see if your text for Sunday has a footnote on it. Because chances are a lot of people are going to see that as they're following along. And it might do you well to just at least acknowledge it. You don't you don't have to, you know, put in an excursus into your sermon. But I do think it would be comforting for certain people in your congregation to know that you know it's there and that you're not troubled by it and maybe give a brief answer to why it's there. And it also could be a great opportunity to say, you know, if you are interested in textual criticism, A, that's surprising, and B, uh, you know, in two weeks we're going to host a, a class on it or, or whatever, you know, and just... in. Use it maybe as an opportunity to jump jump into a talk on that. Well, I don't think
0: interest in textual criticism is going to be surprising anymore after this podcast. It's <laughs> going right. to rise greatly. And in fact, I think we know the strategy for getting it out to the church. We need a reality TV show that focuses on textual <laughs> criticism. Amen, <brother. laughs> Amen. I would be happy to be one of the supporting cast. Maybe Peter Gurry can be the star. Hey guys, thanks for coming in and talking about this nerdy topic. We are just hoping people will be more biblically literate. And I think through some of your wise comments, we have served that end. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Support for the Bible Study Magazine podcast comes from Logos Bible Software. Start a better, deeper Bible study experience with Logos 8 Fundamentals. Explore scripture more thoroughly than you ever imagined with Factbook, an encyclopedia of biblical places, people, and events, workflows that walk you step-by-step step through your Bible study, notes and highlights, powerful and integrated note-taking capabilities for insights, ideas, and questions available in your Logos digital library, and much more. Learn more about Logos 8 Fundamentals and how it will transform your Bible study at logos.com fundamentals. You've been listening to the Bible study magazine podcast. And as long as this doesn't get mangled in transmission over the podcast waves, you can be totally confident that our producer is Kaylee Joyce, our audio technicians are Brandon Van Beek and Jack Underwood, and I am your host, Mark Ward. I pray that our discussions today will serve the church by serving you, the listener, by making you a better and more careful and more knowledgeable and more faithful student of your Bible.